0: Hey guys, this is Sharad, host of ReSimply Podcast. Super excited to have a great guest on this ReSimply Podcast, Axel Ragnarsson. Hey Axel, how are you doing, man?
1: I'm doing well. How about yourself?
0: Doing really good, man. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. I'm super excited to be talking to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, where you're joining in from, and what kind of investing do you do?
1: I live in Boston, Massachusetts, uh originally from New Hampshire. So, you know, I've lived in New England my whole life. Got into the real estate business back in twenty sixteen. Um, was a junior in college, was doing a couple of th- different things to make a buck at that time. Always been pretty entrepreneurial, but uh at the time I was buying and selling cars, I was flipping cars and uh I think I saw an Instagram ad, or I watched an episode on HGTV of like flip or flop or something like that, and I said, "You know what? I want to go and try and flip houses. Let's let's make that kind of the the next objective from an entrepreneurial standpoint." And um, at the time, started learning all I could about how to flip houses, how to find deals, uh, you know, how to talk to sellers. As I was trying to look for single family house flips, I and as I was learning about real estate, I stumbled upon uh, multifamily real estate at the time, which. I just, that spoke to me, I think a little bit more than, than the construct, the construction heavy nature of buying and selling single family homes. And I really like the idea of you can go buy a multifamily property or a rental property, fix it up and put a tenant in there and they start to pay you every month and you can start building passive income. So at the time I adjusted my strategy, but I still had a focus on going direct to seller to find deals and um, started calling and mailing and doing all of that to owners of two to 10 unit properties. Um, and I found a couple of individuals that would do, would extend me some private money financing to go out and buy them. And that was really how I got into the business. And and to fast forward to the first three, four years I was in the business really from 2016 to 2020, uh, it was just me buying small multifamily properties with private debt, adding value, creating value, uh, refinancing out of private money and into commercial debt and just growing the portfolio that way. Um, so first few years in the business bought about 70, 80 units that I personally owned 2020 came around into 2021 and I had a moment of uh, reflection where I was like, do I really want to go out there and just continue buying rentals, six, eight units at a time, or do I want to try and scale a business and, and, and actually more intentionally build a business? Um, and that's really what I ended up wanting to do was let's go out there. Let's find bigger deals. Let's raise some money to go and, and capitalize these larger deals. Maybe we'll start looking at some other markets as well. And uh, and that's where we really shifted the business into being more of a capital raising business. Uh, so from 2021 to now, just a, you know, two and a half, three years or so, we've bought a few hundred units. Uh, we've raised a lot of LP capital from passive investors. Um, I've still done a handful of deals myself on the side, just that I personally own, and that I personally invest in. But we've really turned the business into... Uh, you know, more of a syndication type of business where we're going out there syndicating capital and buying uh, small to mid-sized multifamily projects throughout Southern New Hampshire um, and other markets as well. We've done some deals down in Florida as well. And along the way, we started a property management company, brought our management in-house. Um, we started offering third-party management to services to other people in New Hampshire as well. And did some other stuff like starting a podcast and, and starting to build a personal brand as well. But really now the business is we go out there and we buy uh, small to mid-sized multifamily, which I define as, really 10 to 80 unit deals. Um, smaller side, I buy them. If they get a little bit larger, we go out there and raise capital and continuing to just grow the portfolio and bring more investors into our sphere. And that's, uh, that's currently what the business looks like today.
0: That's fantastic, man. So you started in real estate watching HGTV flip or flop or some flipping show. And then instead of doing, then once you started looking more into it, instead of doing single family, you just started doing multifamily. Have you done any single exactly. family deals?
1: Um, I bought a couple <laughs> of houses to flip. Um, you know I did a couple of condos, I did a you know a, a single family that we converted into a duplex. but you know I, what I realized really quickly was my skill set is in the finding the deals and the putting together the dough. Deals and right. money was where my skill set was. Um, operationally speaking, construction management, um, all of that was not necessarily where I would define my skill set to be. Um, And over the years I've gotten, you know, I've gotten good at it. Like we we have a great team now we operate really well from a multifamily standpoint. But you know, when I was like getting into the business, I, I just didn't enjoy that part of the business. And, and that's insanely critical design construction, you know, controlling your costs, building a product that an end buyer, a homeowner would want. That just wasn't for me. So I did a couple of deals. I broke even on two and lost a ton of money on one early, very early in, in the business that I actually had to sell a bunch of rentals to just get out of that other deal, and I was like, you know what, I'm good. Like that's not that's not yeah. the lane that I want to play in. My skill sets in finding and adding value to multifamily assets.
0: Um, and so that's where
1: I shifted my
0: focus. No man, that's that's incredible. I'm really curious. So you started out buying multifamily. Did you have any fear factor, uh, like not you know just starting out big and not starting out with like smaller properties? I mean, that's what vast majority of investors do is eventually a lot of investors want to go into multifamily if they're doing buy and hold. But you just started out with that. How did you, I mean, did you have any fear? And if you did, how did you deal with that?
1: Yeah, I I don't really think I had a lot of fear, to be honest. I think the proposition, and and I will clarify too, like a lot of the first deals I did were smaller multifamily. So the first deal I did was a three unit. Second one I did was a duplex. Third deal was six units, right? That was kind of the jump, right? Was that third deal outside of the couple of house flips I did along the way. (laughs) and um i i gotta tell you the, the the proposition of buying a whether it was a small multifamily two to four units or a commercial five plus was significantly less because it wasn't so dependent on my ability to to do a great job from a construction management standpoint buying an income producing property just is a lot more forgiving in a lot of ways because outside of doing massive exterior work like your in-unit renovations are much more streamlined and simplified like you're, you're, you're doing some LVP flooring. you're putting some paint in, you're, you're doing kind of contractor grade cabinets if you're doing a kitchen. And the first few deals I bought didn't require significant renovations within the units. I was just going direct to seller and and securing great pricing on the buy side. And that was really where I was creating the value was just buying at the right price versus doing a house flip where I'm like, okay, I got to knock down a wall. I got to get, you know, I got to, I got to manage a GC. It's a much larger renovation scope. Maybe you're spending 10, 15 K in an apartment, you know, you're doing a house flip, a three bed, two bath, you're spending 50 grand because you're doing the kitchen and you're, 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 you're maybe changing the floor plan so that it's more functional. There's a lot more execution risk there. Um, that's how I thought about it. Like the margin for error was a lot lower. So for me, it was, I was more afraid of doing anything on the transactional house flipping side than I was getting into, you know, multifamily property. I thought that was actually a lot easier.
0: Yeah, man, that, that makes uh, sense. I mean, no, it's, it's tons of credit to you, but my Michael- you know, I, I wanna I'm curious, like a lot of investors, you know, I'm sure you've noticed, start out with wholesaling. Like that's the way they start and then they go into flipping, then buy and hold. Was your goal always to just jump right into buy and hold and then just like start with the, you know, end goal in mind and just cut out wholesaling and flipping?
1: Yeah, it really was. Early on, uh, my goal is always I wanna grow my past. I wanna grow I want to build passive income. I want checks coming in. I want some consistency of income, you know, and it's funny if I were to go back and do it again, I probably would have wholesaled more deals uh, because it would have allowed me to stack cash and resources a little bit more quickly early on versus trying to buy multifamilies and scrape by with cash flow until I got to the refinance and got my, you know, my, the chunk of equity I put down (laughs) back out. So it took me a little bit longer to grow in the beginning as a result of that. But, um, but frankly, I think, the reason i was buying everything was because i had the financing lined up like i did a very good job of networking with a lot of different private money lenders that lent me very large percentages of purchase prices on the deals i was buying so like i knew that i could buy all the good deals i found so there was no roadblock as it relates to actually closing the deal which i think a lot of people face on the wholesaling side they, you know they start out they don't necessarily either have the money themselves or the or the source of money whether it's a partner or whether it's a private money lender so they just resort to wholesaling and they want to pick up those fees but uh, early on, I was like, I want to build a portfolio, I want to get to 1520 units so that I'm pulling in a few grand a month. And, you know, my goal is like, I just want to pay for my rent, and I want to pay for my expenses. And, and then I'll take a step back and reevaluate what I want to do. But that was always my goal initially was to get to that point very quickly. And I had everything else lined up to actually go out and buy the properties themselves. Um, so I felt I felt like that was a better path for me. But if I were to do it again, I probably would have wholesaled and been a little bit more transactional on on deals here and there to, um, to just get more money coming back in the door. It would have made it a little bit less stressful <laughs> as I was growing the portfolio initially. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. Um, I was running my cash reserves down every time.
0: How did you How did you go about building a list of private lenders, or you know, have financing lined up? That's always, a, the, I think, one of the biggest challenges newer investors have is the lack of funds. And you had that. And that's why you started out with multifamily. How did you make that happen?
1: Uh, I just went to a ton of meetups. You know, I think private money lenders go to meetups. Um, it sounds so simplified, but that's really the best place to go. Uh, you know, you go to private money and no, excuse me, not private money. You go to real estate meetups and you just ask, you stand up in front of the whole group saying, <laughs> I'm an investor that buys this, you know, I've done a handful of deals. Um, I have the ability to execute, just looking for hard money lenders, private money lenders. And um, you'll start to meet people, you might meet people that aren't going to offer you great terms, maybe they're only going to offer you 80% of purchase price, and they're going to charge you 13% interest or something like that. But you just, you know, you just continue putting yourself out there and voicing what you're looking for. And you'll start to find folks, um, you know, pro tip, and this is kind of the a real tactical one for everybody listening. When you think about who is actually speaking with private money lenders all the time, it's the people conducting the closings, right? So closing attorneys and title companies, they know all the private money lenders. You know, if you find the title companies or the closing attorneys in your marketplace that are very active, that are transacting a large volume of business that are just sitting at the closing table between buyer seller, and they know who the lender is because they're either putting the loan docs together or they just see it on the on the HUD statement, closing statement, they're gonna be great sources from a referral standpoint in terms of, you know, hey, Mr. Attorney who's handling, you know, 20 closings a week, who are you seeing that does private money lending in this area? Would you be comfortable making an intro? And they're typically going to be comfortable making that intro because they're not vouching for you as a borrower. They're just going to go out to that lender and say, hey, I got a borrower who's wondering if he's looking to meet more private money lenders, maybe it would make sense for you to chat. And, uh, and that's how I found a couple of private money lenders as well, was just getting referrals from uh, title companies and closing attorneys. And um, it's just a sheer volume of effort. Always asking for referrals, going to the meetups, asking the A players, the brokers, the title companies, the mortgage brokers, the, the property managers, the whoever, for referrals, and eventually you start to build out a, a roster of lenders.
0: For the first couple of deals, did you use your own money or you had private money from day one or from deal one?
1: Yeah, I was forced to go the private money route. Just um, you know, the first deal I did, I was twenty one. I had no credit. You know, I had I had I had money. Right. I think that's an important distinction. Um, I didn't get into real estate with like zero dollars. You know, I I made. I was fortunate enough to do very well in my previous business, my side hustle, I guess, of flipping cars. So. You know, I had 30, 35K at the time. And, um, and I found a deal that was 200 grand. It was a three-unit deal. Um, I met somebody through an internship I had. It was actually one of the managers at this investment group that I was interning at in college who did private money lending on the side. And I just convinced him to lend me the dough. Uh, 90% loan to value. Um, no construction financing or anything like that. It was just 90% of the purchase price. I said, hey, this is worth 250. I have it under contract at 200. Get an appraisal to validate that. If it, if it if the appraisal validates that it's worth 250, if you can give me 90% of the 210, which was 180, you still have plenty of equity as a lender here um, between loan balance and property value. And he's like, yep, sounds good. Charged me 12%. So it's not like it was cheap money. It was, you know, it was basically hard money rates, but I was in and out of that deal in, in a year. Um, and that's what I did on the first, you know, a handful of properties was I started with this 30 grand or so, and that would basically went, you know, that was all, of, uh, put all of that down to buy that first one. And, um, you know, I had a couple of water heaters that broke and I just put it on like credit cards with like 30 day advances and stuff like that. Don't do that. Not smart, but at the time that was really the only option I had. Um, but I just, you know, recycled that capital into the first deal, into the, you know, into the second deal, I should say, into the third, the fourth, the fifth. And over time I built relationships with private money lenders. So where they would just finance hundred percent of a purchase price. That's hmm. rare. That takes uh, relationship development with a lender. But you know the way that I sold that was in a deal where, let's say I was buying a, a property for 500 grand, I need to invest 75 into it, and then it's worth 750 or something like that. I was always coming out of pocket for construction. So I was still bringing skin to the game. So it's not like I was truly into it for $0. I was like, you know, if you finance the full purchase price, I'll go in there and actually finance all the construction and the CapEx. And I was paying healthy interest rates, 10, 11, 12%, those first dozens of deals, right? It's not like I was getting you know really cheap money. So it made sense for both lender and myself over time. And, uh, and that's really how I built the business initially the first few years.
0: Yeah. And once I've noticed, I'm sure you have very similar experience. Once you do a couple of deals with private money lenders and you actually return them the money, they make money, then they want to borrow, but then they want to lend you more money. They have more money mm-hmm. to lend and then they talk to their friends and families. And then all of a sudden you have more money to use. Has that kind of been your experience?
1: No, 100%. Yeah, I would get referrals from some lenders to other folks, um, you know, within their network. You know, the the dream situation for a private money lender is, if you put yourselves in their shoes, is they just want to work with like one or two people who are going to borrow all their money. They don't want to have to go through the process of finding new borrowers, vetting new borrowers, because that means they have to vet their experience. They need to be more diligent about vetting the deals that they're being brought. Do they have to explain their, their terms and their process, et cetera, et cetera? The dream situation for a lender is like, I just have these couple of, you know, couple of investors or few investors that just come back to me a few times a year for lending. And it's like, I know exactly what types of projects they buy. I know Axel buys five to 20-unit to multifamily properties in this little area. I, knows, I know that he knows how to do that. I know that he knows how to define a good deal. Um, I know that he's got the GCs and the contract or the the GCs, the vendors, the property management, all of that set up and he's going to do a good job. And he knows how I like to lend and he's familiar with my loan docs and he's familiar with my terms. So when you think about it that way, like once you do a couple deals with one lender, they would just prefer to continue working with you. And then over time, you actually start to build negotiating power as a borrower because they'd rather lend you money at 10 percent, hypothetically, in a couple of points. Versus this new investor that they have no relationship with at 11, 11 and a quarter or something like that. Mm -hmm. It makes more sense for them to just go back and do more volume with the same person.
0: I agree. Yeah, I mean, at at that point, their money is like, relatively speaking, safe with you. You know, they know you, they trust you. So they're okay taking a little bit less return than to go after like a couple of extra points with someone they have no idea about. 100% agreement. Axel, can you walk us through what your typical deal looks like? you know, maybe one of the recent deals you've done? Uh, what what does that look like? Numbers on it, you don't have to, you know, give address or anything. But yeah, it would be great if you can walk us through, you know, what's your buying, buying criteria? What makes a good property? What does it make a good uh, deal?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, Uh, We have a pretty wide criteria because I'm still personally open to buying smaller pieces of real estate, just myself, you know, just me. um, We raise money to buy the vast majority of the deals that we source (laughs) now, but I'll still buy stuff on my own. So I define our buying criteria as five to 80 unit buildings, which is very wide, right? And, And this is in Southern New Hampshire and Northern Rhode Island, basically an hour north of Boston, an hour south of Boston. And then we also buy real estate in Florida, but we've cooled on Florida in the last year just for some challenges from an insurance standpoint down there. In the short term, very focused in New England and specifically focused in New Hampshire where we own our property management company. So really our our sweet spot are deals that are 20 to 80 units in size. Most of what we do is 20 to 40, 20 to 50 units we love to, to source opportunities, direct to seller, you know, we're re simply users. We do a lot of direct to seller marketing, both mail outbound calling outbound texting. I'm also very, very intentional about building our brand awareness in the marketplace so that we're brought deals by, you know, brokers off market. We're brought deals by other service providers, like insurance brokers, attorneys, PMs, et cetera, other investors that may stumble across a deal that doesn't work for them. They can refer it to us and make a couple, a couple bucks. Um, and that's really where we thrive. And, and as an example, you know, we closed two buildings that were sourced from one seller. We bought these in July of 2023, um, thinking that this will just be a good example of, of what we're talking about here. Not technically direct to seller, despite that being the vast majority of what we do is direct to seller. But this was a situation where there was a residential agent who normally sells single family homes, but was on our email list and knew us really well. And um, and brought us a 23 unit deal and a 45 unit deal from an owner that was just like a personal friend of hers. She's not a multifamily broker. She's not. She was not marketing it in the correct way, and she just kind of brought it to us, saying like, "Hey, I just have a you know family friend that wants to sell these buildings. Is this something you'd be interested in?" And um, you know, dove on those. There was, those were two separate deals. But for example, the 23 unit deal is kind of the exact story of what we like to buy. I mean, both were, but I'll talk about the 23 unit one where we had uh, 17 studios, three two-beds, three three-bedroom units. Uh, building had a little bit of deferred maintenance, needed a roof, needed a new parking lot. Uh, we needed to paint the siding. We had to go through paint common areas, do new flooring in common areas, um, renovate you know, the units, paint flooring, kind of cosmetic upgrades at 12 to 18 grand a unit, depending on whether it was a studio or a larger three bed. And um, it was owned by someone who had owned it for, I think they, were, they bought it in like 2015, so they'd owned it for seven, eight years their management company was terrible, just was not doing a good job at all. The units were severely under rented, uh, like studios that were renting at six, $700 a month. That market is twelve, thirteen hundred 1300 a month, um, conservatively. Oh, wow. And that's where we've been <laughs> leasing and, uh, you know, two beds at a thousand that should have been 1700 and just, you know, bought it for cheap money back then and just didn't really keep up to date with how it was doing. And, Uh, And just kind of let it go. And then we're like, all right, you know, I want to retire and get rid of this. I don't even want to deal with it anymore. Let's just sell it. Called up their family friend who is not the right individual to sell that building. And then it got to us. Right. And from an economic standpoint, we paid, you know, we always talk in per unit prices to make things easier with multifamily. We paid roughly 104 a unit for that building. Um, we're into it for roughly 118 120 a unit uh, with transactional costs and that's a building that if we went and got it appraised we've only owned it for seven months now um, it would appraise in the mid140s to 150 a unit right we could pull all the equity we have in that deal out you know we're, we're, we've basically created twenty to thirty thousand dollars per unit in value um, 20 30 percent plus above our basis in that which means we can, pull out all of our capital and our investor capital in that deal when we do decide to refinance it. And those are the deals we love. Those are like our sweet spot. And that happened to be an example of one we were brought by an individual, but it was still very much an off-market deal. And we find these deals direct to seller. And that's why we we spend a lot of time going direct to sellers because you can still find those types of deals going directly to Mm -hmm. owner these small to mid-size multifamily types of deals.
0: So is is there a certain percentage of after repair value that you have like a cutoff that let's say if uh, talking about in per unit cost, let's say if the after repair value is 100000 like you would not go over, you know, in residential real estate, people use 70% formula, right? They want to go whatever the ARV is, times 70% minus any repairs. Do you have something like that in family that you use? I think it's very similar,
1: conceptually speaking, right? You know, you we, we do the analysis the same way. We want to be into it uh, you know, we're okay with being in a little bit more than 70%. You know, if we're into it for 80% of the value, I think that's a that's a very good deal for us. Um, that's creating great returns for us. And then more specifically, our investors that are investing in that deal uh, to the point to where they're very happy with their returns. We're, we're happy as sponsors of the deal in terms of uh, creating value for both our investors. And then we're going to get into our split, um, you know, above our preferred return, which is more like, tactical kind of deal structure conversations. But to more specifically answer your question, if we're into it for 80%, that's a great outcome. That's typically where we're trying to underwrite. You know, for example, if we're buying a property for a million bucks, we're putting a couple hundred grand into it and it's worth one five when we're done, one five, you know, one five, five, one six, that's a win for us. And the way we get there, you know, very simple, it's very similar to how somebody's calculating the value from a comp standpoint in the in the single family world or the small two to four unit multifamily world. Our purchase price, our transaction costs, our projected renovation, that's going to be our all in basis. We're going to go and take our stabilized net operating income, which is how we're going to value a multifamily property. What is this property going to be producing when we're done? And we take all the rents to market and we take the rents to where they got to, where they need to be. Maybe we're cutting some of the expenses and we're trying to reduce the expenses. All trickles down to what's the net operating income of the building. What's the cap rate in the marketplace. Now we have our stabilized value, and we can work backwards from there to figuring out what we're able to pay for that building. So, a very similar process. You know, we right. just we're using a bigger Excel sheet, and it takes a little bit longer. But, uh, but conceptually speaking, that's how we think about it, right? Similar approach.
0: How has the interest rate uh, affected your business? Has it been a positive or negative impact on your business?
1: <sighs> that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's there's a little bit of nuance in that it hasn't necessarily affected what we do on the smaller uh, components of our criteria too significantly, you know, like a five, six, 10 unit building. Oftentimes those are going to be owned by a mom and pop owner. Like, you know, if they're selling, you still have the ability to negotiate uh, a good deal. However, we're going to define that, you know, where you're into it for 70, 80% of after repair value And and the interest rate market isn't necessarily going to affect your underwriting that significantly. Your cost of borrowing isn't going to be, uh, such a significant difference that it's like turning a deal into not a deal type of situation, right? Might affect the overall market in terms of what you think the property is going to be worth after because cap rates might've gone up, but you still are able to negotiate quality deals there because there's typically some owner distress. They got a few tenants in the building that aren't paying and they're just fed up. They're sick of managing it. They want to retire, what have you. And there's still a motivated seller. So you can still secure a good price on the smaller end of that spectrum. However, it's been much more, in a, more of an effect on the larger side of, of our criteria, we'll call it 40 to 80 units, right? We're starting to get into $5 million plus in deal size uh, because those owners are very sophisticated. Like Those owners understand the landscape. They're probably operating their property fairly well. Rents are probably pretty close to market. They probably have a sense of what's going on in the market as well in general. Probably not going to be motivated right? from a financial standpoint. They're probably just going to be selling because... They want to sell and they want to capitalize on maybe some value they've created or maybe they own it with a partner and the partner wants to sell and one doesn't so they decide to sell it but like they still understand the marketplace and that's but those deals have been much trickier to pencil with high interest rates because those owners don't necessarily have the personal motivation or the lifestyle motivation and they're anchored to pricing from 2021 2022 when they've been getting appraisals as they refinance you know, the one situation we always see is somebody refied in 21 or 22 because rates were so low and they had their appraisal done as they refinanced. And that's kind of anchoring their value of their property. And it was much higher back then than it is today. So we've had a really hard time closing the gap between where sellers want to be and where we want to be as buyers on the larger deals. And that's probably where it's affected our business a little bit more Uh, on the smaller stuff. It's like not too dissimilar from the house flipping game where people are selling personal motivation, yeah. lifestyle motivation, and you can still negotiate a good deal if you're catching somebody at the right time. Um, but it's made it harder to do the big deals for sure.
0: Right. But on the, on the large multifamily or any, uh, you know, five unit or above, you're not getting 30% fixed loans, right? You're getting loans that are, uh, adjusting every five to seven years. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Yeah, so we typically work with local banks, local credit unions to finance our deals with commercial mortgages. You know, 25%, well, I should go the other way. 75% loan to cost is typically what we try to secure when we're buying a property. So 75% of purchase price, 75% of construction. And usually we have a fixed rate for five, seven or 10 years, depending on how long you fix it for, we'll determine what that rate is. You know, if you're fixing it for 10, it's going to be a little bit higher than if you're fixing it for five and letting it adjust for the last five usually got a 10-year term. And then we usually still secure 30-year amortization periods with like the local banks we work with. But you're correct in that the term is going to be shorter and then the rate's typically going to be a little bit higher than than what you would right. see on a 30-year fixed rate loan on, on a smaller
0: building. Are you Are you noticing people, like not very sophisticated investors who took out loans, maybe let's say three to five to seven years ago, and now their interest rate is adjusting to a much higher interest rate and they're like, Oh shoot! We cannot afford this property. Are you noticing those sellers?
1: Yeah, I think um, parts of the country that's much more prevalent than other parts. In a market like Florida, yes, like without a doubt. Um, where Florida became such a hot market with national interest from a buyer standpoint. Right. Like we were competing. You know, I'm in Boston, right? Where we're competing with deals in Central Florida in a in the city of Lakeland, which is 100,000 people. It's not like Tampa, or Orlando, or Miami, like. It's not a major city down there, but we were still competing with New York buyers and wow. Boston buyers and California buyers and local Florida buyers. And those deals were so bid up and, and just hotly contested that a lot of buyers were forced to go the shorter term adjustable rate uh, approach just because they needed to reduce their interest rate to get the deal done to make a pencil. And there's a lot of owners that are in tricky spots in markets that were hot, like you know just the Southeast, Southwest U.S., Phoenix, that you know, the, the cities like the Phoenix, Tampa's, mm-hmm. you know, Austin, Dallas. But uh, conversely, in a market like New Hampshire, which you know, there's you, you're, um, we're competing with New Hampshire people, and we're competing with Boston people. That's kind of really it. And there wasn't really ever the need to go insane from a uh, a debt structure standpoint to get deals done. That a lot of the people up there are actually doing just fine, right? And and mm-hmm. there's almost no distress up there, comparatively speaking, to the Southeast, Southwest. Um, and the other component too is and this is like very tactical nitty gritty. So apologies if I get sidetracked, but there's less local banks and local community lend or community, uh, community banks and local community credit unions that are lending in a market like Florida than the Northeast. Uh, the Northeast has one of the highest concentrations of local banks and local credit unions in the country, because it's just the oldest part of the U S like there's been banks here for 300 years. Um, so there's an abundance of quality local debt with fixed rate, options so that buyers never really had to go the floating rate direction. Whereas a lot of multifamily owners in the, in the Sunbelt, the best option was typically the agency lenders, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and, and working with their multifamily lending programs, typically lower rates, typically longer um, amortization periods, better LTVs comparatively to the Northeast. So a lot of buyers were using those agency loan products. And if you use an agency loan and you fix your rate, you're facing incredibly prohibitive prepayment penalties where it's like extremely difficult to sell or refinance because your prepayment penalties for your loan are huge. And a lot of buyers that are buying value add don't want to be locked into that. So they go the floating rate route. So there's just a much higher percentage of individuals buying property in the Southeast Southwest with floating rate debt, just because that's more of an abundant option versus the Northeast where we can work with a local bank, we can fix our rate and we can negotiate Mm -hmm. away our prepayment penalties so we can have our cake and eat it too. So it's, Absolutely. it's, it's an interesting dynamic for those two specific geographical areas. And I give you no, a lot, I, think but I think it really sense, depends yeah. on where they're on, on, on. No, no,
0: I think it makes total sense, to man. I, I work with a local lender in my area also, and you, you have more flexibility working with a local lender than you have working with Chase or Wells Fargo's of the world. So 100% agree with, uh, with you on that. So I, I have one question before we move on to the next segment uh, of our podcast. So if there's a newbie investor, right? someone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking, man, it, it sounds like multifamily, especially like, you know, up to 20 units, it's very similar to residential property, right? You're running your numbers the same way. You're just playing at a bigger level, right? You just need to have money lined up a little bit more money lined up, but then your return is going to be much higher, right? What would you tell that investor to take the leap?
1: Yeah, I think, um, There's really a few specific things that you should try to avoid doing when you're getting into multifamily real estate. Let's say you've got experience buying single family rentals or wholesaling, flipping single family properties. You want to go out and buy a 10 unit, right? Your mail campaign has hit uh, a guy that owns a 10 unit property and you're trying to figure out, hey, is this something that I can handle? Um, I think you need to just protect yourself. I think something that a lot of investors don't do when they get into multifamily is make it easy for themselves to, to buy the property and then and increase the likelihood that they don't get burned. And really that happens in a few different ways. Um, you just buy in a really bad neighborhood, like buying in a really bad neighborhood, which I'll define as like a very high crime area, an area with like a median income that's much less than that city or town's median income is going to make everything just so much more challenging. And that's where you have the biggest disconnect between your spreadsheet math and then your reality math. Right. And that's really where an investor can find themselves in a tricky spot where it's like, okay, you underwrote your vacancy at 5%, but in this neighborhood, it's probably 10. And then even when you're not physically vacant, you're going to have 10% economic vacancy because 10% of your tenants aren't, tenants aren't going to pay. And now your spreadsheet math is totally shot. So make it easy for yourself. Don't buy in like a really bad area. Buy in uh, you know, a C or a B area, median income kind of around the median income not a crazy high crime, something that is going to align with your spreadsheet math most significantly. You don't want to buy anything uh, that requires a massive amount of CapEx, of just renovations. Again, because that increases the variance of how the deal is going to go. Um, specifically, you should look for a property that only really requires in-unit renovations that has a good roof, good bones, good siding, decent windows. Maybe you got to do a heating system here and there or something like that. Maybe a repave in the driveway. But you want the majority of your dollars to be spent inside of the units when you're buying multifamily because that's what drives rents, therefore driving net operating income and therefore driving the value of the property. So it's a lot easier for you to really affect the value of the property when you're spending your CapEx dollars, your renovation dollars inside the units or on stuff that helps you rent the unit for more. So avoid really bad areas, avoid high CapEx spend type of properties. Worst thing you can do is combine those two mistakes on the on, on one deal, because that's really where you start to get into some trouble. And the third thing is, uh, put together your debt in a way that doesn't put you in a really tough spot. Uh, you know, I got into this game by using a lot of private money, but I was doing so on very small buildings where I knew that I could get it to the after repair situation, stabilize situation within the first six months, within the first nine months. And I was borrowing private money at eight, on on eighteen month notes, right, eighteen month terms. So I had a buffer there. Typically, when negotiate comes, some kind of an extension option. I never would ever want to buy something with a shorter loan term than that. You know, one of the worst situations you can be in is buying a multifamily. You know, the business plan t- starts to take a little bit longer if you to implement. You have a one year note on it, and then you become a forced refinance or a forced seller in that year. That's where things start to get really stressful. So my recommendation would be the first deal you buy, just go to a local bank. If you don't have the 25% down required to do that, go find a partner. You know, if you have a great deal, it's very it should be easy to find another active investor in your marketplace that will partner on it with you. Maybe you bring half the capital, maybe bring they bring half or they bring 75 you bring 25% of the required money. Um, maybe you make a little bit less on that first one because you don't own the whole thing, but that's okay, right? You're just trying to learn on those on that first deal, those first couple of deals. And uh, and then that sets you up for success on the next one, right? You start building your resume, you start to understand the process of multifamily ownership. You go through the underwriting process with the bank, you become more familiar with that part of the process. And, um, and you're just shortcutting the curve or, or short you know, r- removing a, the variables required to get into that first property, which is ultimately the goal is you just want to get into it. You just want to do one, which is where you learn everything. So I guess if I were to summarize, it's use the right debt. Don't use like hard money financing on a big multifamily deal where you're just going to be stressed out. That's I've seen more people get in trouble because they didn't use the right debt um, than really any other reason. And then second and third are just buying it in an area. That's not terrible. And don't buy something that requires a ton of dough. To turn the building around. Right. Buy something where it's like, all right, we're gonna go and spruce up the units when somebody moves out and keep it to a simple business plan so that you're mitigating Man, the chances that you get in your own way.
0: That's such, such a good advice. Just basically stick to fundamentals. Don't try to, you know, just get into something that's way beyond your capacity. Just buy something in a decent neighborhood that doesn't need too much work. It doesn't have to be home run with your first deal. Just get your feet well. You know, it doesn't have to be the best deal ever. Uh, just buy something just to get into uh you know, just to get some experience. I one hundred percent agree with that, man. Thank you so much for sharing that. Cool, man. Moving on to the next part of our podcast. What do you do for fun? Oh, that's a good question.
1: Um I live in I live in New England, so I ski a lot in the winter and I golf a lot in the summer. I would say those are the outside activities. You know, outside of that, it's uh, it sounds lame, but I'm a I, I just love what I do. You know, I really love the game of real estate. Um, I'm a crack addict, deal junkie, like the best of them. I love, you know, I get the most juiced up when I'm when I'm chasing a deal. So for me, I just naturally work a decent amount as a result of that, but. You know, and then the, the stuff outside that I do it that's adjacent to the to the core real estate business is stuff I enjoy as well. Stuff like hosting the podcast, which you know, we yeah. we just had you on there. Um love hosting the podcast. I love hosting events like meetups as it relates to real estate. But um if I'm gonna give you a better answer, golf skiing and um and then I travel a lot. You know, I try to get outside of the country a few times a year. I'm going to South America for a couple of weeks here and in a month or so, Colombia, then down to Brazil and you know, I try to get out and do a trip like that a few times a year. So
0: it's fantastic Uh, man
1: maybe i need to find more hobbies long story short no
0: dude you you got a lot going on yeah with buying a multi-family running a multi-family business skiing golf and travel yeah i think you have your hands full all right (laughs) what's what's the one book it could be a business book or a personal book or one of each that has had the biggest impact in your life
1: oh that's really good um I should read more. So I'm going to caveat that. I've probably read like 10 books. I got I to gotta read more books. But I think the one book specific to me, and it, and I think it really helped me because of the time that I read it, at, was the book, Who Not How, uh, Damn Sullivan, mm-hmm. Ben Hardy. It's all about, uh, it's fundamentally a book on delegation and bringing other people into your business, into your sphere to help you grow faster. And it has both personal applications just in your own life and then also business applications, Right. It's not really about how you do something. It's about who can potentially do that for you. I've never had a partner in my business. I spent the first five years in this business with no employees, no partners, nothing like that, even on individual deals. I just did everything myself. And uh, the reason that I got into real estate was I wanted to work for myself. And I kind of had a fear of bringing other people into my business, whether they were you know, salaried employees or contract employees or partners, you know, even investors, right? And uh, I read that book. I remember a few years ago, and it kind of just, for some reason, really unlocked something at the time with me, where I was like, "You're just simply not going to get where you want to go if you're just continuing to do everything yourself." And I've really done a 180 on that. And we use a lot of contracted VAs, contract employees. I, you know, built the property management company around that time and started to to build out that business and started to build out our own business to where I have a full time acquisitions person now, you know, an assistant. And that's really what also helped me to make the leap to raising capital from investors. You know, you're going to need to bring in other people if you have a big objective, a big mission, a big goal. Um, so for me, that book was really impactful, specifically because of when I read it, I think, as well.
0: Yeah, it's a great book, man. Is I don't know if it's an African saying or Chinese or I don't know where it's from. But if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others or something like that. Yeah, which like, yeah, yeah I've read that book. Fantastic book.
1: All right, man.
0: Last question. If you could spend a day with anyone, dead or alive, who would you want to spend the day with and why?
1: Oh, man. You got some great questions. These are really good. Um, spend the day with anyone, huh? Ooh, dead or alive. Um, I'd love to just kick it with Matt Damon for a day. <laughs> yeah. know, Boston guy is my favorite actor. Um, I'm a big movie guy, so that would be a lot of fun. Uh, maybe that's the personal one that would be a cool hang. You know, on the business side, if I were to really like, who do I want to talk to that probably has every answer from a real estate standpoint, uh, man, probably Barry Sternlicht, the guy that runs Starwood Capital Group. He's one of the most successful real estate investors of all time. I respect him immensely, both as a real estate guy and a business owner. A lot of what I've read and consumed from a real estate education standpoint is just his interviews, his conversations, articles that he's written over the years to his you know company investors, um and a lot of the principles that he's applied to real estate investing are principles that i try to apply to what we do in our business so i give you two but he's
0: probably the two. business
1: answer and then i
0: great answers man is
1: uh, my favorite actor man i want to chill with him
0: <laughs> great answers yeah all right man so anyone who's listening to this show what's the best way for them to get in touch with you if you want to if they want to connect with you learn a little bit more about what you have uh, going on what's the best way
1: so, at Multifamily Wealth on Instagram is my Instagram account. I'm very active on there, constantly posting helpful content for folks who um, want to start, build, or scale their multifamily business. Uh, and then I host the Multifamily Wealth podcast. I like to think it's one of the best multifamily podcasts out there. I mean, we're certainly one of the highest reviewed, uh, both in numbers, a number of reviews, and then average reviews. And, uh, you know, if you just want to reach out to me over email, Axel, AXEL, at Aligned rep.com, p.com so dot i g
0: we'll put that in the show notes also man all right axel thank you so much for being on the show man you shared tons and tons of great information makes me want to uh, go out and buy some multifamily properties you know just like scale up my game so thank you for doing that and breaking it all down
1: love it and i appreciate the invite thanks for having me
0: absolutely man thanks